The sermon text uh, for this morning is Joshua chapter 3 through chapter 4. We already um, read these chapters during worship this morning, and we know from uh, chapter 1 of Joshua, as we traced the promises that God gave to his people, that the book of Joshua records how God was faithful because he fulfilled his promise to his people by uh, bringing them into the land of Canaan, uh, this land that he had promised to them. In fact, this theme of God's faithfulness is summed up in one verse in the book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua chapter 21, verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Everything God had spoken came true. What had God spoken? Uh, we read what God promised Abraham uh, centuries before in Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. Listen to the promise that God gave to Abraham. He said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God there very clearly promised Abraham a big family and a land. And these promises were repeated again in Genesis chapter 15, but we know well that in Genesis chapter 15, God not only repeated the promises, but sealed those promises uh, in blood as he passed through those uh, severed animals, making his covenant with Abraham. And now, in Joshua chapter 3 and 4, this is centuries later, we see how God's promise is coming to pass, how it was being fulfilled. Not only was Abraham's family big, not only was Israel huge at this time, uh, but God was now bringing them into this land that he had promised to Abraham. He had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, out of the wilderness, and now we read in Joshua 3 that they're on the banks of the Jordan River, this river that they need to cross, this river that now stood between them and the promised land. And, you know, as we think about the Jordan, we need to understand this morning, uh, loved ones, that it wasn't just a calm a stream that stood before them. Uh, there's actually a small detail in Joshua chapter 3, verse 15. It's in parentheses in your Bibles. It says that the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. This text is is giving us the season that this took place to show to explain to us that at this moment uh, the river Jordan was overflowing. One commentator estimates that at the place where Israel was crossing, uh, the Jordan was probably as much as a hundred feet across and twelve feet deep. Hundred feet across and, and twelve feet deep. Now we can add to that the fact that. This was during harvest time. So the river's current would have been especially strong. Uh, 
This means that the Jordan that Israel needed to cross was not a calm stream, but it was a raging torrent. And so, humanly speaking, it was impossible for Israel to cross the Jordan. See, there was both this raging river before them, there were also enemies on the other side of it that presented real threats to Israel. And yet we see in our text that God planned it this way. That God brought his people to this place, to this entrance into the promised land, so that he might again display his power. And so that he might again assure this second generation of his presence. He had done the same thing for his parents at the Red Sea. And now this new generation of Israel would see God's faithfulness to them as well. And that's what we uh, notice in chapter 3 of Joshua, verses 1 through 17, as this second generation saw God's faithfulness. And I'm sure as we uh, read Joshua chapter 3, you notice some similarities between uh, this event at the Jordan River and, and the Red Sea crossing that so many of us are familiar with in the book of Exodus. And, you know, let's think about that Red Sea crossing uh, for a moment. Um, you know, that event for the first generation of Israel was an event in which God miraculously, uh, supernaturally parted this great body of water so that the Israelites crossed over safely toward the promised land. Even that event, humanly speaking, it was impossible unless God intervened for his people, and we know that he did intervene for his people supernaturally, miraculously, to bring them through the Red Sea. God, at that moment, used Moses to lead his people through on dry ground, and that first generation, that generation that passed through the Red Sea, they saw God's miraculous provision. They saw his, his protection over his people, and they also saw that Moses was the man of God, the man whom God had chosen to be the leader of Israel. Listen to uh, the description of the Red Sea crossing from Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 through 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being the wall to them on their right hand and on their left. See, that first generation, they experienced God's miraculous working through Moses. And now, with Joshua, God repeated a similar event to the second generation in order to show that he was with them, that he was guiding them, that he was providing for them as they were entering the promised land. He was their God, and he was the God of their parents. And now God was also lifting up Joshua in their eyes to acknowledge Joshua as the new leader of Israel. In fact, in Joshua chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua today, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. 
And after Joshua led the people safely through the Jordan, we read in chapter 4, the people stood in awe of him, just as they stood in awe of Moses. See, in a sense, this uh, Jordan crossing, this was God's visible, uh, we might say, passing of the mantle uh, to Joshua. This was God's way of, of showing his people that he was with Joshua and that they as a people were now entering the promised land, a, a land that was theirs but that was inhabited by people that were opposed to God. And they, they had to trust in the Lord's leadership through Joshua. They had to trust that God was using Joshua to lead them, to guide them in their battles, and to guide them in now inhabiting the promised land. This event at the Jordan, this crossing of the Jordan, was God's way of teaching Israel that he was among them. He would give them the land just as he had promised. We see in our, our text that uh, Joshua assured the people that the Jordan would stop flowing when the peace, uh, priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant put their feet in the water. Uh, Joshua chapter 3, verse 13. Joshua said to the people of Israel, when the soul's of the feet of the priests, bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. I want to ask you uh, this morning, why did God uh, do it this way? Now, why did God command the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant to go into the water first. Well, we have to remember, loved ones, that the Ark of the Covenant uh, represented God's presence among his people. Um, it was, you might describe it as a very ornate uh, box that had two cherubim on the lid, and, and those two cherubim, the way that they were facing one another, that positioning uh, represented God's throne on earth. It was the mercy seat. And in the ark, there were the two tables of the Ten Commandments. There was uh, Aaron's budding staff. There was a jar uh, full of manna. And for the last 40 years, uh, the ark had been seen by the Israelites only at a distance. Because we know that when the Lord gave Israel marching orders in the wilderness, they had to uh, take apart the tabernacle, and they had to carry everything with them. And when they did that, the ark would go uh, before them. On those occasions, the priests carried it out ahead of the people in order to lead the people. And so the Israelites could see the ark at a distance. But between those occasions, once the camp was set up again, the only person that could see the ark of the covenant was the high priest. And that was on the Day of Atonement. And we read in the Bible that he could see it only through the heavy smoke of incense that filled the Holy of Holies. That his job, in a sense, on the Day of Atonement was to enter the Holy of Holies and, and to sprinkle blood on the throne of God, on the mercy seat. And as Dennis Johnson points out, those blood drops, they dried there on the ark. Because uh, no one could actually touch the ark 
to wipe them off. Because if he did, we know that he would instantly die. So now, think about the picture that we have in Joshua chapters 3 and 4, that as the ark was going out in front of Israel, the people saw the spattered blood. They saw the blood that was shed in order to atone for sin. And this is why God sent the priests with the ark in first. See, God was uh, teaching Israel that their safe entrance into the promised land was a result of atonement, of, of blood that was spilled by another, by a substitute. See, the reason they were the people of God was because their sins had been atoned for. And this is uh, why God now sent the Ark of the Covenant with the priests first, to show Israel that the only reason that they could enter his land of promise was because they had been cleansed by another. God did not send Israel's fighting men in first. He did not command the soldiers to go in first, to prepare the way. Why? Because, you know, that would have made Israel proud. That, that would have made the people arrogant. Uh, no, we see instead that God sent in the symbol of his presence, uh, the symbol of his grace, he sent in the ark that reminded Israel of its sin, but also of the forgiveness that comes through the shedding of blood. Listen to the account in Joshua chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away and were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Dennis Johnson writes, That blood-stained ark was a picture of a greater sacrifice that was to be made, not by another animal, but by the Son of God himself. And just as Israel entered the promised land by blood, you and I, we enter future glory. We enter heaven itself by the blood of another. See, it's impossible. It's impossible for you and me to enter glory, to, to enter heaven on our own strength. It's impossible because we're separated from God because of our sin. Just as Israel was separated from the promised land because of the Jordan. And so how do we get from here to there? Well, it's by atonement, loved ones. It's by the shedding of blood to pay for sin. And that's what Christ did. Christ shed his blood. He died in our place to bring us to glory. See, there was nothing that Israel could boast about that day other than to boast in God. Israel, once they crossed the Jordan, they couldn't say, it was by our power 
that we uh, crossed the Jordan. Or, no, it was because of our merits that God brought us into the promised land. No, the only thing that Israel could boast about in that day was in the Lord, in the display of grace that they saw as God stomped the river so that they could cross over on dry ground. See, God was teaching Israel, and he is teaching us today, loved ones, that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and it's not our own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And not only did the second generation of Israel see God's faithfulness, but God also gave them instructions about how they were to remember this uh, moment, this display of his glorious grace. We see in our second point the importance of remembering God's faithfulness. <coughs> what we learn throughout Scripture, we talk about remembering God's faithfulness. We learn throughout Scripture that one of the great dangers to our faith is forgetting, simply forgetting. Now, sometimes uh, we forget God's goodness because of adversity that we may be experiencing in our lives. Uh, we may forget that God is good and faithful to us because we are experiencing sickness. Uh, we're experiencing financial worries, um, arguments with our loved ones, perhaps persecution or rejection from our friends. This is why Israel during the uh, exodus so quickly forgot God's goodness when they experienced adversity. Whenever they encountered, we might say, a road bump, whenever they encountered some difficulty in their lives, rather than trusting in God, they immediately forgot about God's past faithfulness to them. And they longed to uh, return to Egypt. They had forgotten about the evils of slavery and the bondage and the burden that they had experienced in Egypt. And they completely rejected God as a result of their unbelief. Sometimes we forget because of adversity. But loved ones, sometimes we also forget God's faithfulness because of prosperity. Sometimes it's not because we're having difficulty in life, but because we're not having any difficulties. Because everything is going great, and we have ease of life. We have abundance. We're, we feel like we don't need God, like we're not dependent upon him. And it's in those moments in our lives that we're in danger of forgetting that it is only by the grace of God that we have what we have. In fact, this is the very thing that Moses warned this second generation as they were preparing to enter the promised land. This is the very thing that he warned them about. This danger of forgetting God as a result of prosperity. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning of verse 10, we read Moses saying, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up 
and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. See, loved ones, this danger of forgetting, whether it's for adversity or because of prosperity, this danger of forgetting is the reason why God commanded Joshua to take 12 men. Uh, one we read from each tribe, and each man was to take a stone, and he was to place the 12 stones where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. Joshua chapter 4, verse 7, we read, So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. See, they would... They would serve as a physical reminder to Israel of God's grace to them. That, that it was not by their might or by their power that they entered the land, but it was by God's grace that they lived. You know, in our homes, many of us have things that help us remember, right? Those important moments or those important events in our lives. We have photos and souvenirs. We have uh, home videos. Uh, we have our kids' artwork, perhaps, up in our homes and on our refrigerators. And, you know, these uh, memorabilia that we have, these things, they help us recall special moments and special people in our lives. And, you know, we don't only have these things in our homes, but we have them actually in our country, don't we? Tomorrow, we know, is Memorial Day. It's the day that we remember and honor those who have died while serving in our country's armed forces. And, you know, there are statues and, and paintings and memorials in every state that remind us of war victories, of national heroes, of, of great people from our past. Why do we have these things up as a country? Well, it's because we don't want to forget. But there's even more to it if we think about it. Because we know that the act of remembering also affects us. It affects the present generation. When we remember the past sacrifices of others, like those who have gone off to war and, and given their lives to protect us, you know, we, have, we have a greater appreciation for the freedom we enjoy for the quality of life we experience today, for what we have as a result of their sacrifice. And this is why it's especially important for us to remember our past. We have these things in our homes to remind us, these things in our country to remind us, but God also has given us things whereby we might remember. In Psalm 105, we read the psalmist says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. See, the psalmist is here saying that our remembrance is not just a matter of calling it to mind, but to recount it with thanksgiving. It's remembering that result in praise and, and thanksgiving and celebration. Loved ones, I want to ask you this morning, have you been experiencing adversity, adversity that has led you to forget God's 
faithfulness to you. God has set before us a reminder this morning of his faithfulness. He set before us this Lord's Supper. It's a reminder to you and to me that nothing can separate us from his love. That nothing can separate us from his grace to us in Christ Jesus. It's a reminder that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, uh, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's tangible, physical reminder to you and me this morning. And also, you have been experiencing prosperity. Prosperity to such an extent that you have forgotten your need for God. And that the result of your prosperity is simply a result of God's faithfulness to you. Well, the Lord's Supper speaks a different word to you this morning. It is a sign to you and to me of our complete dependence on God. That we cannot enter heaven by our own merits. That our prosperity, that the strength that we have, that the blessings that we experience in this life, has come to us not because of what we deserve, not because of our merit, but because of one who died in our place. And so we receive grace upon grace through Christ. The table this morning that reminds us that we come as those who hunger and thirst, that we come as beggars seeking bread. It's what we sing when we sing the hymn, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me. There's a stanza that expresses our need in this way. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And that is true faith. With the memorial of stones, we see that God commanded Israel to set up at Gilgal was not only to help that second generation to remember his goodness, but it was also a memorial for future generations. We note the third point in the outline, the importance of teaching God's faithfulness. Teaching God's faithfulness. We read, beginning at Joshua chapter 4, verse 20, In those twelve stones <coughs> which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. <coughs> and he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God, forever. See, this wasn't uh, just a memorial for those who witnessed the miracle on that day. But the instruction is that it was to serve as a memorial for future generations as well. This, we know, wasn't the first time in Israel's history that 
God instructed Israel to teach their children about his faithfulness. This is actually a pattern that God instructed Israel to do uh, throughout the Old Testament. The first time he did so was during Israel's exodus from Egypt on the night of the Passover feast. We read in Exodus chapter 12, beginning of verse 25, Moses said, And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service, this service of Passover. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the next time was when God gave Israel his law on Mount Sinai. Notice the pattern. God does something dramatic, something miraculous, and then he instructs Israel how to teach these truths to their children. You see, uh, as God gave Israel his law on Mount Sinai, Moses, recalling this event, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And this command, this command we read is even stronger in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the importance of instructing our children. We read in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And then this pattern, this instruction again, is repeated in Joshua chapter 4. And we know that it's continuing on into the New Testament that there is a continuity there, that we as Christians today are similarly commanded to instruct our children in the Lord. Children who are here this morning, do you, do you realize how much God cares about you? Do you realize how much God desires you to know him and his ways? So much so that he commands your parents. He commands us to teach you about his love and his grace to instruct you in his ways. That's because you are also part of the covenant. You're not outsiders, but you're insiders. You are part of the church. You have been baptized. You have received the sign and seal of baptism. And so we are all working together to instruct you in the Lord 
as his word commands us. Your parents are teaching you at home. Your Sunday school teachers teach you at church. Those planning vacation Bible school and, and the youth camp are doing so out of faithfulness to what God has commanded in his word. And you are joining in worship and hearing the word preached. You are doing so not as outsiders, but as insiders, because we are all the family of God. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We know that it is only by grace that we are saved. We thank you, Lord, that your mercy extends uh, not just to us, but also to our children. We pray that you would grant us to be a church that knows how to instruct uh, those that you have entrusted into our care in the ways that are outlined in your word. Lord, that uh, they and future generations would continue uh, to serve you and to honor you. We pray that as we now partake of this uh, spiritual feast that is before us, that you would grant us to understand the elements and what they symbolize, and that you would cause us to eat and drink in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.